The mitzvah and the laws of Nazirus do not apply to non-Jews. If a non-Jew makes a neder, he makes a vow to accept upon himself to become a Nazir. The Torah and Halacha do not recognize that acceptance and that vow, and the non-Jew would not be obligated to keep that vow to become a Nazir. The Torah introduces the parish of Nazirus by saying, Dabrael b'nei Israel, speak to the Jewish people, and that comes to exclude non-Jews. On the other hand, Noshim v'avodim, women and non-Jewish slaves, a non-Jewish slave who is owned by a Jew has basically the same laws as a woman. Any mitzvah which a woman is obligated to keep, a non-Jewish slave who is owned by a Jew is obligated to keep. And the law is that Yeshla and Nazirus, they do have the mitzvah of Nazirus, it does apply to them. And again, this is explicitly learned in the Pesukim. The Torah talks about a man or a woman who becomes a Nazir. And it's also learned from a different Pesuk that the Torah includes a non-Jewish slave in the midst of Nazirus as well. The following is a stringency regarding the Nazirus of a woman over that of a non-Jewish slave, because one is able to force his slave to violate his Nazirus. Whereas one is not able to force his wife to violate her Nazirus. So in that way, the Nazirus of a woman is stronger and more than that of a non-Jewish slave. However, on the other hand, the following is a stringency regarding the Nazirus of slaves over the Nazirus of women, and that is true. One has the ability to annul the neder of his wife. If his wife became a Nazir, one is able to annul that neder, and then it's as if she never made that neder at all. But he is not able to annul the neder of his slave. That is a unique right to do with one's wife's nadarim, not one's slave's nadarim. And therefore, if he annulled the neder of his wife, then he has annulled it forever. So even if he were to divorce her, she would not need to go back to being a nazir. On the other hand, if he literally it means he annulled it for his slave, but it means that he protested and he didn't allow his slave to keep the laws of Nazirus. Yotzadacheirus, as soon as his slave goes free, Mashlam Nazirusai, he would be obligated to complete his Nazirus, being as the neder of Nazirus was never gotten rid of. Now what happens if Ovamekneged Ponov, the slave went away from being in front of his master, meaning he ran away. Now halachically speaking, he is still considered to be owned by his master. And therefore, since the master, the owner of the slave, is able to force him to drink wine, etc., so that he has enough strength to serve him properly, even once he runs away, since he's still owned by his master, and his master is adamant that he do not, he just doesn't keep his Nazirus, so he should be able to drink wine and to eat grapes and to violate the Nazirus according to the wishes of his master. However, Meir says that he is forbidden to drink wine. And the same goes for the other prohibitions. And the mayor's reason is that this is sort of a punishment towards the slave in order to encourage the slave to go back to his master. On the other hand, for Rabiasi says that he can still drink wine since at the end of the day he is still owned by his master. If his master said that he doesn't want he wish him to be a Nazir, then he cannot be a Nazir. And he doesn't need to be a Nazir, so he would be able to drink wine. Mishnah based. The subject of this Mishnah is a unique halacha of Moshe Sinai, a tradition which we have going back to Moshe from our Sinai, regarding something known as Tumas HaTahoyim. Tumas HaTahoyim refers to a source of Tumah that was until now totally unknown. 
It was in a hidden place which nobody knew about. So when that tumor is discovered, there are certain laws which are different to regular sources of tumor. For example, Nazir Shagilach, if a Nazir shaved his hair and he went through the entire Tiglach Satara, the end of his Nazirus period, and he's no longer a Nazir, and then Venodaloshu Tomei, it becomes known to him that he was Tomei, that he became Tomei whilst he was a Nazir. If it is a known Tumah, that's talking about a regular source of Tumah, then Caesar, it would have rooters in Tainas Zeros, the carbonas which he bought would not be valid, and it would have to start as a Zeros from the beginning. However, the Tumas had to home, if it is Tumah which was only discovered now, and the mission will bring an example, then Enosaiser doesn't uproot the Naziris, and since he's no longer a Nazir, and he went through the Tiglach Satara, there is this leniency from Halach and Sinai that he does not need to be a Nazir again. However, if the tumor was discovered, the source of tumor was found before he went through the shaving and the whole Tiglach Satara process, then whether it be a known tumor or a tumor which has only been found now, it would uproot the Naziris. So even in the case of the Tumas HaTahoyim, the Halacha Messinai case only included a case where the source of Tumas was discovered after he had gone through the Tiglach HaSatara. Ketzad, what is an example of Tumas HaTahoyim? And the first Mishnah will bring an example of a regular Tumas, and then it will go to an example of Tumas HaTahoyim. If somebody went to dip in a cave of water, he went to go to the Mikvah, and we're talking about a Nazir who became Tommy from something else, not from a dead body or anything. But he became Tommy from something else, and which, which causes him to need to purify himself in a mikvah. And after he went to the mikvah, it emerges that there was a dead body floating at the surface of the water in the cave. And it's unknown whether this Nazir became Tomei from that dead body. Says Mr. Tomei, he is certainly Tomei, since it is a case of a doubtful Tumor which occurs not in a public domain. The halacha is that a case of a doubt in Tumor, which applies somewhere where there aren't a lot of people around, where it's not considered to be a public domain, that is ruled stringently and therefore Tomei, he would be Tomei. However, if the dead body was found and it had been sunk and stuck into the ground of the cave, then it's considered to be Tumas HaTahoyim, because it was unknown totally until now. In that case, there's a Halacha Sinai of Tumas HaTahoyim, another leniency of Tumas HaTahoyim, that we don't rule this doubtful case at strictly that he is Tomei. Rather, it depends. If at that time he was already considered to be Tahar, then he remains Tahar. So Yared Lahoker, if he went down to the cave of water just to cool off, not to purify himself in the mikvah from any sort of tumor which he had, then Tahar, he's Tahar just like he has been until now. We rule the case of a doubtful tumor of Tumas HaTahoyim leniently, only if it's the time of Tumas Meis, if he went there in order to purify himself from a tumor which he already had from contact with a dead body, so then he's already Tomei anyway, so the leniency of Tomei Satahoyim does not apply, is not included in that Halach Lomesh Sinai, and therefore Tomei, he would be considered to be Tomei. Shechezkas Tomei Tomei, because the Chazaka of somebody who is Tomei is that he should be Tomei. The Chazaka refers to a rule that we assume that the status of something remains as it has been until now, unless otherwise proven. So there's such a thing as somebody having a chazaka of being Tomei, or Bechezka's Tohar. If he had a chazaka of being Tohar, then he would remain Tohar. Shraglain Madovar, because there is 
basis for the matter, meaning there's basis to assume that he remains until what he, what he has been until now. So in the same way as we have this concept of Chazaka, we have a very similar idea by Tumas HaTahoyim. That the Halacha Rosh Sinai, which says that you can be lenient in the case of Tumas HaTahoyim, is only said about somebody who already had a Chazkas Tara. He has a Chazaka that he is Tahar. Mishnah Gimbal, the next couple of Mishnahis bring more examples of this concept of Raglaim Ladovar, that there is basis for assuming something. And the subject matter of this Mishnah is when one finds a dead body in a piece of land. In general, it is forbidden to move somebody from their permanent burial place, take them out of the ground and bury them somewhere else. It's considered to be a disgrace towards the dead bodies. However, if it's not part of a larger gravesite, and it's just a dead body buried randomly, then it would be permitted to move that burial place, that individual person buried there, and move it elsewhere. Says the Mishnah Hamait Simais, one who finds a dead body, but Chila originally, meaning no other dead bodies have been found in that location beforehand. And Mushkov Kadarkoi, the dead body is lying in the regular way that Jews are buried, and that is lying flat with their legs straight and their arms on their heart. If they are found like this, the he can take the dead body itself plus the earth immediately around the dead body. And that way he can then move it elsewhere. He can't just take the body itself, but if he takes the earth which is around it together, then he can take it and bury him somewhere else. Motsashnaim, if he found two of them, then again, Nodlamestavusasan, he would take both bodies and the earth around them and bury them elsewhere. Motsashloisha, but if he found three of them in the same area, if there is between four and eight Amas between the first and third um, graves along. In that case, then this is assumed to be an area of burial. It's assumed to be a burial site, a graveyard, in which case it's certainly forbidden to move any dead bodies. They must stay there. If that's the distance between them, that's a sign that it's, in the, that it's buried in the regular way. That was the regular distance for there to be left between graves. And now, once it's considered to be a graveyard, he has to check from then and in 20, for 20 amas in every direction from those graves. And he has to assume that for all of that area, it's considered to be part of the graveyard, and therefore Tomei. And if he found even just one grave at the edge of this 20 amas, so in general we would say, ah, it's one grave, so you can just, we can assume it's a temporary burial, and you can take it by itself and bury it elsewhere. But no, now that we're saying it's considered part of the grave site, so it would be forbidden to take that and move it elsewhere. If he found one at the end of the 20 Amas, they would need to check from then and in every direction from that grave for another 20 Amas. Because there's a basis for this matter, we can see that it's already considered to be a graveyard. Now the question is just how large is this graveyard? So as long as you see graves within 20 Amas of each other, even though in general they would need to be much closer to each other, once you have the basis, the Raglaim Ladovar, then even with a much larger distance, we would assume them to be part of the gravesite. Because had he just found this, this grave originally by itself, the law would require him just to take the body and a bit of the earth around it, and he would be able to bury it elsewhere. Only because of the Raglaim Ladovar, the basis for the matter, only because of that do we assume that it's all part of one larger gravesite. So that is just another example of this concept of Raglaim Ladovar. 
Mishnah alone brings three different examples of this concept of Raglayim Ladavar, of Chazaka. We presume that something remains as it has been until now. And the first example concerns the laws of Tzara'as. Certain spots which one has on their skin which would make them Tome as a Mitzayra. They would show their spots to a Koyen and the Koyen would pronounce them Tome if it is indeed Tzara'as. And in many scenarios, the Koyen wouldn't be able to say whether it's Tzara'as on the spot. No pun intended. Rather, as we saw in the previous couple of Prokem, the Kohen would order him to go into a building by himself for a week. He would be known as a Mitzra Muskar. He is kept in a place by himself for a week, and then he returns to the Kohen a week later. And the Kohen examines it again, and if the Tsaras has grown, for example, that would be one reason to declare that person a Mitzra. As well as that, the law is that if the Mitzra became Tomei as a result of its Tsaras growing larger, as soon as the Tsaras grows, um, shrinks back to its original size, he would be considered Tohar, and that's considered as if his Tsaras is, is no longer there. So the Mishnah says, Kol Sveik any doubtful case of Tsaras originally, Tohar is ruled as it being Tohar, it's ruled leniently, and when is that? Achalon is Kaklatuma. That is in a case where the person has not yet been considered Tomei. The Kohen has, no yet, has not yet pronounced him Tomei. So as long as he has not yet become considered a Mitzoyah, he hasn't got that status of a Mitzoyah yet, the cases of doubt are ruled leniently. However, mission is going to Once he has become Tomei and he has the status of a Mitzoyah, then Sveiko Tomei, his doubt would be ruled strictly and he would be considered to be Tomei. And the Mishnahis and the Goyim explain this in length, what exactly would the case be. But in short, a case where he has a chazaka of being tahar, for example, if there is a doubt as to whether the tsaras has indeed grown or not, is there a reason to make him tome or not? So since he at the moment he is tahar, he remains with his chazaka and the Kohen would not pronounce him tome. However, if it's the opposite, that he's already become tome because his tsaras spread, and now the question is whether the tsaras has shrunk back to its original size, so again, it's a doubt, since he has a chazaka right now of being a Mitzayra, of being Tomei, so he remains with that status. Alright, now the second part of this Mishnah discusses a Zov. A Zov is a man who becomes Tomei as a result of substances exiting his body. And the law is that if a Zov has these substances exiting his body for two days in a row, then he's considered to be a Zov, and he has a very severe level of Tuma. He would need to purify himself in a natural spring of water. And if he has these substances exiting his body a third time within a week of the first two times, then he would be obligated to bring a Korban as well. Now the Mishnah says, B'Shiva Durachim, in seven different ways, Bodinus Azov, we check a Zov, before he has received that status of being a Zov. When he sees it the second time and we want to give him the status of being a Zav, we check all sorts of different things in order to find out whether he is indeed considered a Zav. Meaning, if there is some reason to explain why these substances exited his body, so we would assume that is why and that it is not really considered something which is a reason to make him into a Zav. What are those seven ways? Bamachal, if he ate something specific which would cause things to exit his body, for example, dairy products or fatty meat products. Over mishte, if he drank a lot, bemasa, if he exerted a lot of effort carrying something heavy. Over kfitza, if he jumped. 
if he was unwell, if he saw women, or he was thinking about women, these could have been causes for thing, for substances to exit his body, in which case we would assume it is that, and it is not a reason to make him into a Zov. However, Mishan Izgal Aziva, once he has already got the status of being a Zov, he has seen these substances exiting his body twice already, and he's a Zov, and now the question is whether he saw it a third time or not, so the third time we don't start checking if there's a different cause for this thing. Ain Bojano so we do not check him, rather Onsai, even if it is out of his control and it's not considered to be Zov, it's because of one of these other things, nevertheless he would still be considered a Zov and once he sees that third time he would need to bring a carbon as well. And now the Mishnah adds another case, if there's a doubt as a result of Shikhvas Zera exiting his body, that refers to semen, another substance which might exit his body. And if he knows as a fact that the Shikhvas Zera exited his body, and soon after another substance exited his body, so there's good reason to assume that it's also Shikhvas Zera. However, since he has the Chazoka of Azov, we assume that it is the substance which would make him into a Zov who is obligated to bring a carbon. So to him, they would be considered Tomei, we rule strictly Shreglaimatovar, because there is a basis and a Chazoka for the matter. Alright, and now third and final case, if somebody hits or injures his friend, and the people estimated and evaluated that this person would die as a result of this person's attack, and then the Heikel Mashahoya, the victim's situation became lighter, to the extent that they estimated that he would indeed live, but then the Achamekan, after that, Hichbid Vomais. His illness and injury got more severe again, and then he died. According to the Tanakama, Chayev, the one who injured and attacked him, is liable, because we assume that he died as a result of that. It's true that in the middle he got a bit better, but ultimately he died because of you. However, Menachem says, Potter, he is exempt, because there is basis for the matter, and some explain this is going back on the Tanakama, some explain it's explaining Menachemia. The question is, where is the basis over here? You could argue that there's a Chazaka and there's basis to assume that it's the injury and the attack which caused the death. Or you could argue that the fact that he became better again is a reason and basis to assume that indeed he didn't kill him. But be as it may, that is another example of this concept of Raglayim Ladovar.